What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Abbott Laboratories has restarted production of Similac at their plant in Michigan that was at the center of the U.S. baby formula shortage. One thing that gets overlooked in all this is what exactly caused the shutdown. There was a lot of sloppiness coming out of the factory. By the time FDA investigators showed up for their annual inspection, It was already a year overdue because of COVID restrictions, and despite finding evidence of chronobacter bacteria at the plant, the FDA relied on Abbott to fix their own problems, and then came a whistleblower report. By the time the plant was shut down, some babies had fallen ill, and the shortage was imminent. For more on how the U.S. baby formula shortage got started, we'll speak to Anna Edney, national healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News. Chronobacter is a bacteria in question here. And what happened, it's a bacteria that really likes to hide in dried goods, powdered things, particularly infant formula. And the scary thing about it, as adults, you know, you or I happen to uh, ingest some, we'd probably be fine, but infants do not have the same immune system and they can develop meningitis, encephalitis, and you know when it gets that far, about 50% of them die. It's extremely rare, but this bacteria you know, did end up, it was found at the, the Sturgis, Michigan plant, and it was in some surface swabs at the plant, so on either equipment or um, the floors or the doors or something like that. There were some FDA inspectors, Food and Drug Administration inspectors, um, that showed up at this plant in September for an annual inspection. And they noticed they were looking through Abbott's records and noticed that they had found some chronobacter. It wasn't that unusual for a, an infant formula maker to find it in the plant. It's a pretty ubiquitous bacteria. But they had twice found it in formula that was meant to go out for sale. And of course, they held that formula back and they destroyed it. But the fact that it made it that far is concerning. And fast forward five months, throughout that time, over those months, there were some babies who 
had Chronobacter that had eaten the formula made at this Sturgis plant. Um, it's one that a lot of people might have heard of, particularly Similac. The others were Elecaran Alimentum. And so two of these babies died. And our story takes a look at what happened in those five months, why it took so incredibly long for regulators to, to kind of pick up on this fact that there were alarm bells there with this plant and that it was shut down in February, but that's a long time from September when the FDA was first there and could have seen what was going on. And that's the point, right? There was alarm bells all along the process between FDA investigators. There was a whistleblower report that came out. It just took months and months for them to kind of get their act together and really give it the appropriate attention. And by that time, it's too late. You know, by that time, the plant had to be closed. And then, uh, you know, the ensuing shortage happened. And, you know, you were talking about these FDA investigators that showed up to the plant finally to do their investigation. The pandemic was going on, obviously, and it delayed a lot of things. That investigation that they went to was already delayed a year because of the coronavirus. So now we're a year behind. As you mentioned, there was chronobacter that was found there a couple times before. And one of the interesting things with all of this is that Yes, maybe the FDA can flag stuff or the plant itself can flag things, but there's really no follow through on it. The FDA just really relies on the plant itself to take care of these problems. And I think that's a major part of this. That's something that the FDA does a lot is that they'll find things at factories, whether it's for infant formula, different food or drugs, and they'll draw up this list of what they call observations, things that they think violate the standards of how things should be done. And then they'll tell the companies, here's what we saw, and we're going to let you go ahead and fix this by yourself. We're done now. We did our job. We pointed out all the issues and we're walking away. And so that is essentially what the FDA did in September of 2021 when it was at Abbott Sturgis, Michigan plant. When they went back at the end of January, and this was after babies had gotten sick and a couple of them had unfortunately passed away and after a whistleblower had sent a report to the FDA bringing up all these problems. This whistleblower worked at at the Abbott Sturgis, Michigan plant um, previously. And so once all of that happened and the FDA finally decides they need to get back there at the end of January. A lot of what they put out in their report talking about the problems at Abbott were pretty much a lot of the things they had found in September. They just didn't flag them in the same way. You know, in September, they just said, here you go and fix this. And then they came back and they saw the same things and then they escalated it to shutting the plant down and and a massive recall that resulted in the shortage. Tell me a little bit more about the whole thing with the whistleblower because they filed something in October. The FDA didn't really interview them until December. So some time had passed there. But the thing even with the whistleblower report, which I thought was so interesting, was the report didn't come through because that employee felt that, uh, you know, the plant was sloppy and dirty and full of bacteria. There was another employee who brought a taser to work, apparently, and the whistleblower had a uh, problem with that. And then they got fired for outing things. And, and really, that's what prompted the whistleblower to want to submit the report at that time was other workplace issues that really prompted it. Yeah, that's absolutely right. The, um, you know, I think the whistleblower had kind of felt on the outside of the in-group at this Sturgis, Michigan plant. And 
somebody brought a taser to work and didn't get in trouble for it. And he felt that they should have. And so he, you know, the first thing he actually did was file a complaint with Michigan's OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, because he felt that he had been retaliated against, in particular for raising a lot of concerns about the plant and that they used kind of this taser issue and some mistakes that he had made um, to get rid of him because of the issues he raised. And then he went and he then in February of 2021 filed a complaint with federal OSHA and then seems to have, you know, kind of maybe gotten his thoughts together a little more and, and had a lawyer that they ended up deciding, well, some of this stuff actually violates the FDA standards and they wanted to go to the FDA with it as well. And so he filed that in October of 2021. And what's so interesting is he sent it to different people, different ways at the FDA, um, some through email, and they got the report. And then the highest level officials, he sent it through FedEx, kind of tried to do an official channel. And the FDA says that those reports got lost in the mailroom and they still haven't, haven't found some of them. The hardest part, right, is to connect all the dots and say, well, this chronobacter that they might have found in the formula at these people's houses, you know, how do we connect it to the actual factory? And and that's always been one of the hardest things. I think the FDA came out with some type of report and really didn't nail the factory, the Abbott factory there for Mm -hmm. it. And, you know, they they went on social media and said, hey, see, we're not connected to it. You know, so all of this kind of really shady parts of it, uh, you know, still unclear. In the end, I mean, what what happened? How did they get the factory back on track? Because they had to enter into something that was called a consent decree, which basically gives the FDA more uh, purview of what they're doing there. This is a document that was drawn up with the U.S. Department of Justice, and it gives the FDA a lot of oversight over this facility. And the reason they did that, there's a complaint from DOJ that accompanied this consent decree. And it says that the that Abbott and the three managers that it names were, quote, unwilling or unable to implement sustainable corrective actions to ensure the safety and quality of food manufactured for infants. So they clearly didn't think that Abbott could do this on their own, um, even though the FDA had had tried to let them do that back in September. And they basically laid out in this document exactly what Abbott had to do to get back on track. So they needed to do better safety procedures, do more product testing. They also had to repair a lot of equipment, replace the roof and redo the floors. So there was a lot going on at this factory that needed work. Anna Edney, National Healthcare Reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, Take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. 
That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Finally for this week, get ready for the magic mushroom pill. As medical benefits of psychedelic drugs has moved into solid science and more mainstream, Startups are racing ahead to bring products to market. Psilocybin and other psychedelics have shown promise in treating conditions like depression and PTSD and is especially effective when paired with therapy. As a result, we are seeing an industry pop-up that could see a global market for psychedelic pharmaceuticals reach $6.9 billion by 2027. For more on this, we'll speak to Kristen V. Brown, health editor and reporter at Bloomberg News. What has happened in recent years is this absolutely has moved from being an underground movement to being an industry. And that move has resulted in intentions. Um, it's, it's, it's quite a weird thing when you have this promising pharmaceutical candidate that also has this long history, this lore, you know, it has fans. And then there's also all of this cultural baggage. Right. So, I think that's created this this interesting moment where you have people who have very different ideas about how we should get these drugs to people. At this point, many, many people agree that psychedelic drugs, you know, psilocybin, MDMA, that these drugs have tons of promise. The studies have shown uh, really quite dazzling results for, for disorders that are often really hard to treat, you know, PTSD, treatment-resistant depression, but the question is, how do we bring these to people? And there's one camp that's like, you know, this stuff is, is safe. Uh, it has this long heritage. We should just make it available to everyone, like many states have done with marijuana. And then there's another camp that says, no, hold on. These are powerful substances. Right. And we need to be very careful and thoughtful about how we deploy them. And then there's also, you know, companies who are like, well, no, the question is, how do we how do we make a bunch of money right. off of them? So there there are many different stakeholders with many different ideas, and we're at this moment where it's all sort of you know mashing together in in this way that it's unclear what will happen next. In a lot of this conversation, we are talking about magic mushroom psilocybin. That seems to be uh, uh, one area that's getting a lot of increased attention, right? MDMA also figures into this, ketamine as well, but for the purposes uh, mostly of this is uh, we're talking about psilocybin right now. Psilocybin and MDMA, those are definitely the two most uh, buzzed about candidates in this space. But I do think it's important to remember that while, um, you know, certain things are clear, right? Clinical trials have suggested that these drugs definitely seem to help people who... Were, who, who struggled to find help in a therapy before. And, you know, I would call them medications, right? That yeah. is, you know, if we're talking about using these as therapies, they need to be approached as therapies, even though they have this other past. But even though that part of the science is clear, that there is this amazing promise, there are still so many questions because, you know, 
uh, when these drugs were first explored for for mental illness in the 50s and 60s, but then you know the late 60s, the early 70s came, and the backlash against drugs like psilocybin, like like magic mushrooms, and um, with that, the scientific research really dried up. So we had these decades, you know, really truly decades where no progress was made. And so there's really basic questions that we don't know the answer to, right? Like we know that these drugs um, seem to uh, impact the serotonin receptors in your brain, which is similar to antidepressants, but we don't know what about the drugs is doing that, right? We don't know what happens next. So there's these really basic scientific questions that answering them might help us know more about the appropriate way to roll them out. You know, some scientists are saying is the psychedelic effect of psychedelics important at all? Or is there some other aspect of these drugs that is really doing the work? And if that's the case, you know, do people really need to go on seven hour trips uh, in their <laughs> therapist's office in right. order to get the, the benefits of these drugs? So there's really basic questions that still have not been answered yeah. as much promise as there is. And so, that's part of this too, that, that, you know, the excitement is there, but, but there's so big questions yeah. that we don't know the answer to. And that's an important distinction to make as well. You know, they're not just giving people these drugs, these medications, they're done in therapy settings as well. So it's a, it's, there's multiple components to it. And, you know, the psychedelic drugs do help break down some of those barriers, help people work through their issues. And, and they see that these therapies do work and they stick a little bit, right? You know, the positive effects that come out of this do stick around for some weeks after certain therapies. You know, everybody's different, but this is where they're finding some successes. So now tell me a little bit about some of the businesses, some of the startups that are really working on this and, and some of the products that they're hoping to bring to market. Yeah, so a startup that I spent a lot of time with is Numinous, which is based in Vancouver. And they're really interesting to me because they're taking a different approach from a lot of their competitors. A lot of companies are synthesizing psilocybin, um, which is, you know, the sort of most important active part of magic mushrooms, although there may be other parts of the mushroom that also influence um, their efficaciousness. But um, Numinous is, instead of synthesizing the molecule in the lab, they're growing mushrooms. But what they have to figure out how to do is, you know, how do they take a mushroom, this sort of wild, inherently variable thing, and make it standardized enough that every time you swallow one of their pills with basically ground up magic mushroom powder, that you know what you're getting, right? There's not a question of whether you're going to trip for four hours or 15 hours. So they have to figure out how do we take all of the variability out of this inherently variable process. And I think that's really interesting. And that's really what all of these companies are struggling with. Like, how do we take this thing that is associated with wildness and, and turn it in to something reliable, something the FDA will approve because it affects most people in an approximately similar way. And I think that's one of the most interesting things going on in this industry right now is really having to, you know, tame something wild. Numinous does uh, some type of six-month-long verification process when they're growing the mushroom. So obviously they've been looking into it for much longer than that, but when they're growing them, right, it's a painstaking process. It's all very interesting on how that would work. 
back to this whole notion of the the industry and what's happening in the future of this, you know, we're seeing states already start uh, considering this. Uh, in 2023, Oregon's going to be the first state to widely legalize psychedelics. Then we got, you know, California, Colorado, New York, Washington considering some forms of these. So this is going to be much, much more on the horizon. Yeah. And I think that, you know, one of the most interesting things somebody said to me while I was reporting the story was this um, Stanford scientist um, who he's actually working with this guy who uh, this other scientist at UC Davis and the UC Davis scientist is one of the scientists who believes you don't need the trip. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're working on this project together to try and figure out how much benefit people can get from the drugs when they're under anesthesia. So basically, you know, when you're not experiencing the effects of the trip, but this, this, this guy at Stanford, his sort of theory is you do need the trip, but the trip isn't the only thing that makes us effective. It's also that, you know, people are going and getting really good therapy. And his point is sort of, you know, we don't have an epidemic of depression in the United States because we don't have the right antidepressant because we don't really have the framework to deliver care adequately. So I think as these drugs roll out and we're questioning how do we make sure that they're effective and that they can help them as people, we also have to, you know, question what is the system that we're using to deliver these drugs to people, right? Are we just, is this eventually going to just devolve into mail order drugs, like what has happened with ketamine? Or are these going to continue to be given to people, you know, with, with good therapy, which, you know, usually is shown to have effects no matter what kind of mental health crisis you're suffering through. A lot of interesting stuff in all of this. Uh, There's a lot of details we couldn't get to, so I suggest everybody read Kristen's piece on it. Kristen V. Brown, health editor and reporter at Bloomberg News, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.